outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 152. Today on the show, we are joined by the one and only Stan Potts, and we're discussing some of his most memorable hunts and the lessons learned along the way that have led to his incredible hunting success. Welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we're joined by an absolute legend in the whitetail hunting world, the one, the only, Stan Potts. And Stan's a longtime big buck killer. He's been the host of shows such as North American Whitetail TV, Whitetail Explorer, and Matthew's Dominant Bucks. And he's appeared on many other shows and videos as well. And Stan has killed mature bucks on public land and private land. He's killed them DIY, and he's killed them with outfitters. And so he's got a lot of different types of experiences. And along the way, he's killed four different 200-inch bucks. So today our plan is to dive into the world of Stan Potts. I want to hear about some of his most interesting experiences over the years. And hopefully, most importantly, you know, hopefully we're going to be learning about what some of those most important hunting lessons are that he's learned as he's chased these big deer all across the country. So that's the game plan. And before we get Stan on the line, though, back with me today is my buddy and co-host, the nine-fingered man from Iowa, <laughs> Dan Johnson. How are you? Mark Canyon. Oh, you know, just uh, living that dream, living the American dream. Yeah, white picket fence? Yeah, except like... My, it's not really white. It's like the paint, the fence needs paint, and I haven't had a time to, to fix the fence yet, if that makes sense. It does. It sounds just about right. Can I tell you a really quick – this just popped in my mind, but speaking of you. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, great. I love where this is going to go. <laughs> I almost had a nine-fingered dad. My dad – not that okay. sounded weird. <laughs> it's not like, it's I not almost like you, had a nine-finger dad. <laughs> it's not like you were almost my dad. Um, 
my dad almost lost one of his fingers last week. Doing what? He was going fishing, and he, him, and his buddy had they were putting the boat in the water, and somehow I don't I don't know all the details. I'm not sure if they know all the details, but somehow when my dad put his hand back on the hitch of the trailer in between the ball and the receiver, my buddy's or my dad's buddy was just getting out of the vehicle and must have let his foot off the pet off the brake or something. Somehow the truck shifted back and smashed yep. and crushed my dad's finger between the hitch and the receiver and it almost completely severed it. The bone was sticking out completely like five fractures in there and Damn. they almost had to amputate it. Um but it looks like they saved the finger. So I almost had nine fingered wonder on the podcast and a nine fingered dad. <laughs> well I tell you what, I, I'm looking for a good co host for my podcast. <laughs> You know, maybe if he goes through with an amputation, we could talk, but until then. <laughs> I'll, I'll send him your way if that happens. <laughs> so how are Is he you otherwise? okay, though? Yeah, yeah, he's good. He's good now. Good. He he had surgery last week, and it looks like that went well. So um, knock on wood, looks like uh, should be should be set moving forward. Cool beans, man. You're back from Montana? I am back from Montana. Yep, got back it, late last week. Does it suck to be back, or are you glad you're back? You know, I'm actually glad to be back. Um, it was I had a blast out there, did a lot of awesome stuff, but you know, it was also exhausting. Um, yeah. And it's just nice to kind of get settled back into the routine and and be able to kind of get some work done in a regular place. It was just a little bit more challenging, I think, trying to trying to work, trying to record podcasts, trying to do different things when you know we were living out of a campground or national forest, and you know, it's hard sometimes to get power, hard sometimes to get internet. Um, different stuff like that so um it was fun but uh it's nice to be back and i can get to work on some of my whitetail chores so so many whitetail chores so that's right the to-do list is long well i tell you what let's see real quick i went fishing this weekend caught a ton of fish my daughter caught some fish yeah real awesome fishing's fun blah 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 anyway (laughs) but (laughs) But you could never uh, be a fishing podcast host if that's no, how you talk about be, fishing. Blah, no, blah, well, blah. I love I love fishing. Right, it's it's really fun, especially when the fish are biting. I got uh, my father in law. He's been uh, fishing this specific portion of the Mississippi River for forty two years. So, wow. and he's retired. So, not only does he know where all the hot spots are, the good spots, depending on how you know low or high the river is. He's there all the time. So as soon as that shift happens, let's say the water, the river drops a foot, he knows where the fish are going to be. So when, whenever we go up there, it's like we have our, our, our own personal guide. So it, the That's fishing nice. never really sucks. That's awesome. Yeah. But more importantly, and kind of the whitetail thing, man, I like I got some money set aside this year for some gear that I'm going to buy. Yeah. And it's burning a hole in my pocket and it's it's going to be dangerous like <laughs> i don't know if you ever go through these phases where i got some catalogs uh in the mail from a couple companies that i've mm-hmm. made purchases uh from in the past and it's just like it's it's kind of like fishing it's like a fishing lure where i'm gonna bite and i'm gonna lose i'm not gonna lose because i'm actually gaining good gear but you know i've already bought arrows this year i bought a pack frame this year uh what else i'm gonna probably buy some boots i'm gonna buy uh let's see what else am i gonna buy i'm probably gonna buy some additional like 
camo slash gear, you know, uh, that I'm going to buy some more wool base layers and stuff like that. It's just like, it's so dumb because I pro I have everything I really need, but I want more. You and me and everyone, everyone listening probably. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's especially this time of year, like it's, it's bad, but I know it's just true. Like you get a little like dopamine burst when you can't, you can't actually go hunting, but you can get this little tiny right. bit of hunting excitement when you go to the <laughs> gear store and you buy something. So like I do that to like hit the hunting feel good buzz button. <laughs> right. Right. And then my checking oh, account crazy. doesn't look good. <laughs> Amen on that, man. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I mean, you've been back for what, two, three days now? Or how long? Yeah, we got back like late Thursday, but then we went up to visit my family over the weekend. So I've only really been home at the house for two days. Um, but I did, go, I did go turkey hunting finally. I went turkey hunting twice yesterday Anything? and today. Um, no, I actually took my nephew out both days trying to get him his first bird. And um, we had somewhat close calls both days, but just couldn't quite get him to come into range. Um, right. He's just using a little 20 gauge, so we definitely have to have him close. But um, but it was cool. He, you know, the first time he's ever been turkey hunting and had him, you know, they're working in and they're gobbling and responding to the calls. And he was pumped. And you, at one point I thought they were going to come in, come into range where we're at. And I told him to get ready. And he was holding the gun up. And you could see him, like, breathing really heavy and shaking. And I was like, all right, he's feeling it. He's feeling it. So, so I'm pretty excited about awesome. that. I'm going to try to get him out some more before the season's done. And, and I'd rather him get a bird than me. So hopefully right. – uh, Hopefully that'll happen, and I think we're going to do some hunting this weekend and finish off the month of May on a hopefully high note. Awesome. All right, so I guess we got Stan coming on here pretty soon, but I got – have you checked any trail cameras? Did you have any trail cameras up and running on some of your old food plots or anything like that? I mean, do we have a Holyfield update or anything like that? <laughs> no Holyfield update. Um, I pulled all my cameras before I left to go out, okay. so no cameras are up, but uh, but I'm definitely going to be putting them out here soon, and just just a lot, of, a lot of stuff. I've been seeing a lot of deer the last two days while hunting, keeping an eye out for a, a chunk out of the year of a buck, but haven't seen them yet. But right. uh, fingers crossed, and so, the food plot work's going to be starting soon, and right. I did do some habitat work before I left that we never did talk about that maybe we can talk about more another time. Worked on some bedding areas and stuff. So so the plan is in the works and I'm doing trail camera studying still, looking at things and you know, this is a topic that we could talk about for an hour. So oh, yeah. But uh yeah, it's it's all in the works. So Ben Harshine, you know, the owner of Huntera, our, oh, yeah. our friend of both of ours, he uh he got a call from the landowner that he hunts on and he had uh, a buck still holding they, uh, the, they were out there mushroom hunting a buck that is still holding on I think it was April 15th really? both sides yeah jeez that's, so crazy. that's crazy yeah it's been a weird year yeah very oh, weird we, year. I didn't, uh, we haven't talked about this we went me and Kylie went shed hunting right we haven't talked about this Oh, um, in in Montana. Yeah, we went shed hunting in Montana. I saw the pics, man. That's yeah, awesome. It was sweet. We, so we hit up the property where I killed my buck last year, and we found four sheds and a deadhead. And Kylie found her very first shed, and it was a really nice one. Um, man, it had long two main beam. It looked yeah, like. long main beam and a big split G three, a deep split G three, 
and two tines busted off. It had an inside tine, and then like its G2 was busted off. So if it had those tines, I mean, this would have been a six-point side then, and it would have been substantial, like, I don't know, 60-plus inches probably when it was all said and done. Are you um, heading back out there? This well, year? I, I am hunting. I'm, I, excuse me. I am <laughs> going to hunt Montana, but I was planning on hunting a different spot um, just to try new things. And I know I wanted to hunt federal public land instead of um, state, but I don't know. Now that I know yeah, this, that, yeah. <laughs> now that I know this guy is still there, um, a little it's, tasty. It's very tempting, and I know it. And uh, I don't know. So we'll see. Maybe I'll maybe I'll try a little bit in the new spot, and then if it doesn't go well after the first couple days head over to this one. I don't know. We'll see. But excited right. to know he's there. Yeah, amen. So well, we're going to have to do another podcast here soon where we can just catch up on what's going on with our world because this wasn't enough. Um, to There's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. Velvet. Velvet antlers are beginning to pop out. The velvet rut is coming. Oh, I'm getting excited. I love this. I love June and July and August when you start seeing those deer in the fields. <laughs> I love going and checking the trail camera uh, for the first time, uh, you know, when they're like in July, when they're for the most part done growing, you know, they still got like a couple inches left and you're flipping through the trail camera and you go, oh shit. Yeah. That and is the that best. big buck that you've been chasing for like three years. Oh uh, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, <laughs> let's take a break from our little uh, joy fest here. Let's get our sickest story and then we'll get Stan on the line and he will help us scratch that whitetail itch. And our sickest story today comes from our very own Spencer Newharth. He's a producer here at Wired to Hunt and the co-host of our Rut Radio podcast series that airs in the fall. And Spencer just completed an absolutely amazing turkey hunt, one truly for the record books. So here's his story. So it was April 15th. My fiance and I were on our way to our family Easter. Now on the way there, I convinced her to let me drive by some of my turkey spots to see if anything was going on out there. Sure enough, out in the middle of this pasture was just this huge tom. He had like a paintbrush of a beard I could see through my binoculars, and I knew I had to go after this bird. So I drove her home, dropped her off, grabbed my Matthews, and put on my Stratus pants and my Fanatic hoodie, and went back after that bird. So I get out there, and that tom is gone. I don't see him anymore. Um, until I realized that he's looking right at me. Um, we're about 80 yards apart, and I think, oh, man, this is over. So I, I duck back into the trees, watch him for a little bit, and realize that he has a hen with him. Now, that hen did not know I was there, and so I still had a chance at this bird. So I sneaked to within about 40 yards, and the two turkeys had yet to move, and I crawled out, laid out my hen decoy, and I called a couple times, and sure enough, it piqued that hen's interest, and she came walking over towards me. Now, the Tom was hesitant, but he was not about to give up that hen that he had. So here comes the hen right through my shooting lane about 12 yards. I'm just tucked back in the trees, no blind. And following her is that Tom at full strut. I shoot him at 8 yards. Uh, it was a great shot, but I still had to make a follow-up shot about 10 minutes later to, to put him down and... I knew right away this was my biggest turkey I'd ever shot. I got up to him, and then I realized just how special he really was. He had three beards. Uh, the biggest one was over 11 inches. In total, they measured over 27 inches. And he's going to go into the record book. as South Dakota's new archery state record for Rios. 
And in the world, he'll be number 15 overall. So that's my Sitka story. If you'd like to create your own Sitka story or to see Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. All right, now with us on the line is Stan Potts. Welcome to the show, Stan. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. My favorite subject, talking about big deer. Hey, you and me both, and Dan, I'm sure, too. So <laughs> this uh, this will be fun. And I was just saying a second ago before we started recording um, that you and I had chatted a few months ago with the Drury's on our other podcast, the 100% Wild podcast. And coming out of that conversation, uh, I, I was just I was excited because I knew you were going to be joining us on the Wired Hunt podcast, and you had so much great stuff to share. And uh, I'm just... I'm just excited for today, and there's a lot I want to talk about, so I'm not going to beat around the bush. So, Stan, what I want to kind of kick us off with here is hearing a little bit about who you were before the Stan Potts that we all know from TV. Before you were up on the tree stand on the television screen telling everyone to give you a quick second, what were you doing before all that, and how did you get to this point? Well, I mean, before that, I've been a deer hunter. I mean, back in the in the '60s, I shot my first deer with a bow in 1967. I was 17 years old, and I hunted um, for a few years before that. I, you know, I loved it. I grew up as a hunter. When, you know, I went with my dad when I was just big enough to walk. I mean, we squirrel hunted, rabbit hunted. My dad had bird dogs, so we always pheasant quail hunted. Back in those days in the Midwest here in Illinois, you know, we had tremendous pheasant hunting. Now, of course, they're gone, basically. I mean, the environment's gone. But I started deer hunting at an early age. My, my, my dad never hunted deer, you know. And when I started in, in the mid-60s, there wasn't any gun season in the county that I lived in. There was some counties in Southern Illinois that had a shotgun season, but none here in central Illinois. And so I started bow hunting with a recurve. Loved it. I mean, from the minute I started, I just loved it. And I've never stopped to this day. And it's just as exciting. And I get just as much out of it today as I did back in the 60s. That's awesome. That's that's good to know that uh, that it never wears off. It hasn't worn off for me in 25 years or so, but I'm glad to know that I've got many, many more years uh, of that fire in the belly. So once once you started hunting, you know, in Illinois, right away, were you able to have success on those big bucks? I mean, is it like they say that back in the day they were just behind every tree in Illinois, or did it take a long time for you to make that transition to being able to kill those bigger, older deer? Oh, it took a long time for me to kill those big old bucks. Absolutely. The, like I said, the first deer I shot was in 1967. It was a doe with a recurve. I was standing on a level. Of course, I didn't use tree stands back in those days. And I had hunted for two or three years with a bow before that. But, you know, big bucks never came to me until... I'm going to say the first one I killed was in the, in the seventies, mid seventies. And at that time I wouldn't call it a big buck, but it it was, they were nice bucks. My first big deer was in the early eighties. 
the first the first what I would call big deer I shot with a bow in um, eighty one, and it was a big nine pointer, big white deer, close to one fifty, and then of course in nineteen eighty three. I shot what at the time would have been the number three Pope and Young in the world, typical. Wow. You know, 212 gross, 195, and 6 eighths net. And, you know, I mean, to shoot a deer like that, um, third largest ever taken with a bow on the typical side, you know, that just fueled the fire. And then I just started. It was a an obsession hunting big mature bucks from that point forward. I've been, I've been blessed though. You know, I was born and raised and grew up in Illinois and there's no place any better than the Midwest and Illinois, you know, for big mature whitetails right here through the farm belt. So I was blessed. I was bit with the bug, had a passion for it and lived right smack in the middle of the best in the world. Now you mentioned that it, your first, I guess, quote unquote, big buck was shot in the mid seventies. Was it at that point that you started going after, um, bigger, more mature bucks or was it until you shot that big one in the eighties that you were, no, I started, no, I started going after him after when I, when I was able to take that big mature nine pointer that just, you know, that kind of lit a fire and it was such a it was such a thrill such a a moment of satisfaction to shoot a big buck like that i wanted to do it again it you know i wanted that feeling again and again and so i started hunting mature big bucks and that's what i hunted not that i didn't shoot does down the down the line and stuff like that but primarily with bow hunting i was hunting for big mature deer well, what was like the biggest, what do you think was the biggest shift you made that allowed you to start being able to do that consistently? I mean, what did you have? Was there one like watermark moment where you all of a sudden changed one thing and now all of a sudden you started having opportunities at that, that first big mature buck and then in those subsequent years? Was there anything you remember that really was like the light switch moment for you? Well, I, I yes. I mean, I realized back then that your opportunities at at these bigger mature bucks was going to be around the rut meaning not peak rut peak rut is by far the best but late october all through the month of november the last week or so of october all through the month of november and then a little bit in early december is what i concentrated on because i realized and i knew that that is when these big deer are on their feet. That's when that's when they're the most vulnerable. Not that you can't kill one in the early season, because you can, but not with any regularity. And I just felt like if I if I stayed uh, if I stayed true to that time period, I would be more successful. I just wanted to put myself in the best situation. And that was it. Now, eventually you became a, a worked with an outfitter, correct? Was that the, during the same time period or was that later on after you've been doing this for a while? 
No, that was later on, and and um, that was that was that's actually later on, and that's when I first met Mark and Terry. I went to work for um, for a place a lot of people probably heard of, Heartland Lodge. They had just started Heartland Lodge, and they hired me and Brenda to um, to run it, to come in, set it all up, and manage it. And that's when I first started um, dealing with outfitters. And, and if you would call me an outfitter, I guess, I was managing Heartland Lodge. Kind of going and back. And that was back in the 90s. Kind of going back to, you know, the 80s before all the trail cameras, you know, before knowing uh, every buck on a particular property. How did you go about finding and locating uh, a big buck? Or was it something where you just sat in a tree and waited for a big buck to come by? No, no, no. You know, I mean, I, you know, primarily where I was hunting was Illinois. That's where, that's where I lived. And when I became obsessed with hunting these big bucks, and that's what I wanted to do, then I learned everything I possibly could about hunting them, and I started scouting for them. I started scouting in the postseason. I started looking for big rubs, scrape lines. I mean, big giant rubs, to me, is, is one of the most important pieces of sign that I can find that tells me that, that a particular or multiple big bucks are in the area because big bucks rub big trees. Not that little bucks don't rub big trees cause they do, but they don't make big rubs. I mean, where the tree is tore up and you can see it 50 yards down through the timber. That takes a big buck to rub a big tree like that and tear it up. And that is what I look for. And then I start putting the puzzle together. I start finding the big rub lines in conjunction with scrapes. Then I start figuring out where the bedding areas was versus where the food source was. And then I started figuring out how I felt like he would move from point A to point B. Reading everything I possibly could, talking to other people, you know, reading Gene Wenzel's book, I mean, just on and on and on, you know. I was just so. going to ask, um, and maybe you just mentioned him, but I was going to—I was going to ask who were your greatest um, uh, resources or mentors, or who did you learn the most from uh, when you were just figuring all this out yourself? To be honest with you, I didn't really have local mentors as far as shooting big bucks goes, as far as hunting big bucks. You know, I learned it on my own, but I read everything I could. And, you know, back in, in 1982 is when the first issue of North American Whitetail Magazine, what I thought and what most deer hunters think of as the Bible for big buck hunters. And, you know, I started reading everything I could. But I learned it all on my own wow. as far as in the field and figuring them out. So, 82 North American Whitetail came out. And you said in 83 mm-hmm. was the year you killed the, the 212, is that right? Right, and and then in 84, they did a feature article on him. Wow. Could you tell us about that hunt, how that all came together? Uh, shooting the buck or the article? The, the buck. 
Yeah, I mean, I I had seen this buck. I was hunting a little piece of property that butted up against some state ground that there was no hunting. And I had seen this buck a year before. And I knew he was there, but I'd only seen him once. And, of course, I was hunting multiple big bucks I knew was in the area. And the day after the gun season that year was November the 21st. And we have a three-day gun season in Illinois, a Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday. And those three days prior um, was the gun season. Well, Monday was the 21st of November, and it was an unseasonably warm day. You know, it was 70 degrees plus. And I went that afternoon, and I had a southwest wind, and I had a tree right in the corner of this little piece of property. It was a big burrow tree. And... At that time of year, you know, it's a it's a great time to rattle because, I mean, I rattle a lot, but, you know, I've always felt like just before the peak of the rut and just after the peak of the rut goes down is the best time. Well, November the 21st in Illinois is when the rut is starting to dip down the other way. And what that means is, these big bucks are having a little bit of problem. Big mature whitetails are having a little bit of a problem having a hot doe. There's not as many. They got to spend a little more time on their feet to find one, if you're with me. So that's a great time to rattle. I got in the tree early afternoon. I mean, one thirty, two o'clock probably. Got in there early. And and went through a rattling sequence, didn't see anything. About 3 o'clock, I picked the horns back up again, cracked the antlers together. And I get the antlers out of my hands quick because a lot of times they come running in. I've had, them, I've had that happen, but sometimes they don't. I, I hung the antlers up real quick, picked up the bow, and immediately looked in front of me, looked to the left, looked to the right, because they can come in quick, like I said. And I looked back to my right. And I heard something back over my left shoulder. I heard a noise. So I turned real slow to look. And this is like 30 seconds after I hung the horns up. I turned and I looked. Well, when I looked, I saw a, a squirrel jumped up on the side of a tree and, and went up the tree. You know, well, my brain tells me that's what I heard, you know. That little rustling noise. So I turn back to my right. I'm looking in front of me, looking to my right, looking behind. I hear the same noise to my left again. Chunk, chunk, like something in the leaves walking. And I slowly turned and looked back over there again, and there he was. He had come into the rattling. He was there quick, and he was just standing there looking. He was about 40 yards away in this little waterway that led from the tree I was in down to this pond to my left and he had just come out of a thicket and he was just standing there looking back and forth. He was looking for what he heard. There was no doubt. And as soon as I saw him, I was certain it was a buck that I'd seen the year before. And when I saw him the year before it was in the late season, it was in December and I was sitting on that corn field on a small cornfield, And he came from a half a mile away and there was a bunch of deer out in the field. And I noticed, I just looked up, and I was trying to be as inconspicuous as possible with deer out in the field, nothing I wanted to shoot. But, you know, I was I was being as careful, because you've got a lot of eyes out there. And 
And all of a sudden, I just happened to notice that every deer in the field had their heads up looking all in the same direction. I looked completely across this field, and here's this giant coming. I can see his rack almost a half a mile. And he's coming across there. Well, he comes all the way across, comes down in, comes into my cornfield, and he's on an angle that's going to put him at 40 yards broadside. But there's some limbs kind of in the way, but there's one pretty good hole that I can shoot through, but I need to stop him because he's walking, but he's walking slow. And I come to full draw, and when he gets into that opening, I back then I wasn't experienced enough to stop him with a soft grunt. So what I did was I just, like that, wrong, spooked him. <laughs> oh. He just immediately took off and made three or four or five leaps straight away from me and stopped and turned and looked and looking for that noise that spooked him. And he started stomping and they started blowing. And then he just went right back out of the field the way he come with his flag up, tick-tock, just like the second hand on the clock and gone. So... <laughs> We're back to November the following year. The only time I'd seen the buck. He comes into the rattling antlers. He's standing there looking at me at 40 yards, looking my direction. Then he hops over that little waterway, and he starts up into a thicket. And that thicket goes up on a hillside right in front of me and to my left. Well, I know that he's going to come out of that thicket. And he's going to come out right in front of me. And there's a run at 40 yards, and there's a run at 20. And I don't know which one he's going to be on because when he went up in there, he's on a run and it forks up in that thicket. So I don't know which one he's going to be on, but I'm squaring myself around, getting my bow in position, getting everything because I've made so many stupid mistakes over the years. You got, you know, I mean, you don't get many chances like this. And I squared around and I'm just standing there sideways waiting to draw my bow, but waiting for him to appear where he's going to be. And I can hear him walk. And, and, and as he starts to come out of that thicket, I don't know for sure where he's at. And then I catch him out of the corner of my eye walking. He's got his head down and he's at 20 yards. He's, he's on that 20 yard run. And as he steps out, he goes behind a little red hall bush. That gave me a chance to draw. You cannot draw on those big giant deer like that. If they can see you, they'll see the movement. So when he went behind that little bush, I drew. I come to full draw. And as he comes out, he's got his head down. He's sniffing the ground. But he stops. And all I've got is his head and his neck just up to about the front part of his shoulder. And he's sniffing the ground, looking around. He raises his head up. And I'm at full draw this at this point, you know, and I'm waiting for him to step out, you know, and, and he stands there and stands there. Well, you know, I mean, if he was still standing there today, I could have kept that bow back. That's how much adrenaline I had. So finally he starts walking and in my mind, and I don't know if, if why or how I figured this all out, but I knew that it was the buck I'd seen the year before. I knew I couldn't stop him. I knew that he was walking super, super slow, and I was real high in the tree, and he's real below me, so I felt like I needed to hit him at the last rib because he's quartering away. So I put the pin about six, eight inches in front of where I wanted it to hit, and I just and I just followed him. He was walking real slow, and I kept my bow arm swinging. I hit the release, and the arrow hit him perfect right behind the 
right behind the last rib, angling forward, and he just blew out of there. I mean, just blew. Everything just was bang, 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 happened so quick. <laughs> up over the little ridge, gone. Crash, crash, down through the brush, and then it got quiet, and then I heard a big crash way down. Well, immediately I'm thinking, oh, no, you know, was that him going down, this and that? And I started second-guessing the shot. Was it too far back? Was it this? Was it that? <laughs> I was going to wait 30 minutes to get down. I waited about one minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was on the ground in one minute. I was on the ground in a minute, probably. I lowered my bow down, got down, and I thought, well, I'm going to walk up there. I started to go up there. I come back. I went back and forth a couple times, about 10 feet. I got back to the tree, and I said, no, you know you hit him. It looks good. Get out of here. Go get help. You'll need help anyway. Just leave. It was about 3.30 in the afternoon, something like that. So I left, went home, got two of my buddies, grabbed a wheat light. Cause it, was, it was a pretty good drive, 15, 20 miles to get, get home. And the time we got back, it was dark. You know, that time of year, it gets dark at 5 o'clock. It was dark. Went up there, found a couple drops of blood. Last little spot of blood was on the side of the little bitty sapling, about knee high. And that was it. And that was only within about 30 yards from where I'd shot him. No blood, nowhere. Looked and looked and looked and looked in a small area there, split up in a small area, making little circles. I didn't just want them guys to go wandering off. Then we, so we went back to the last spot of blood there and, there up to my right was a big woven wire tight fence. And so I thought, I told them, I said, if he went to the right, I said, he had to jump that fence because it's only up there 30 yards. I said, if he jumped that fence, when he hit the ground on the other side, there's gotta be a little blood coming off that arrow or something. I said, you guys go up there and look on both sides of that fence. And I, and, and I got on my hands and knees and started crawling, looking down every little game trail. And I went about 30 yards and I broke out into a little grass field with sparse trees, which is the worst place you can be for trying to find blood in, t in tall grass. So I stood up, walked about another 10 yards, and I had a wheat light, but I didn't have it on my head. I had it in my hand where I could move it around. And I just looked. There was a big scrape down below a big oak tree to my left, and I kind of went downhill. And I thought, you know what? He might start circling downhill. And I just shined that light down there by that scrape. I don't know why, but I did, and I could see his left antler sticking up above the grass. It was waist high. Wow. And he died right in that scrape. And what I heard crashing from the tree was him going down. Wow. An, an absolute epic story. And I and I got oh, and I got to imagine. And I forgot I had two buddies. <laughs> I, I had two buddies with me. I, I I I sat down with the deer and put his head in my lap, and I'm just sitting there in shock, you know, knowing because I knew Mel Johnson. I know Mel Johnson. He has the world record still today with a bow. I've been in his house. I've held the the deer and everything, and this deer has has a bigger frame. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, this is the biggest deer I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm sitting there, and I don't know how long I sat there before I realized that I had Kirby and John out there with me somewhere. 
And so I stood up and I could see their flashlights way up through the trees. And I hollered at him. I got him down here. Well, they didn't hear exactly what I said. They just heard me holler, and they hollered back and said, "Did you find some blood?" And I hollered in a as loud as I could in a plain, clear voice, "No, I am standing over him. I got him right here." <laughs> it looked like airport searchlights coming. They was running, <laughs> and their lights going, and it was well. All the listeners right now, I wish everybody, everybody could experience something like that moment. It was, it's, you know, when I talk about it now, I, it's like it was yesterday. I mean that it was like it was yesterday. How much bigger was this buck than your previous biggest buck? Oh, it was my biggest buck before that was high forties, almost one fifty. I mean, it was, this buck's a two twelve gross one ninety five and six eights net. It's the third largest typical ever taken with a bow in the world. Wow. So, so I mean, there was no comparison. I mean, back in those days, I mean, there were mega giant deer. I mean, the, the Jordan buck was killed in 1906, you know, and, and there was a lot, but not around here, not where I'm at. I mean, the local hunters and everything. I mean, you know, nobody saw a deer like that. Nobody, nobody ever seen anybody pull up with something like that in the back of their truck. Yeah. yeah. How did shock you, how, how did you handle that moment of truth when he, when you see him and this is so much dramatically larger of a deer than anything you've shot before when you were about to shoot him, when you were in that moment before the shot, how did you handle it then? What was going through your mind? How were you able to handle that moment and pull off a successful shot? And then I'm curious, how does that compare to today or any of your later massive bucks, those other 200 inches after you'd become much, much more experienced? What was that like originally, early, and then now? Well, I'll tell you, it, it was like this. I mean, I had made, without going into all the all the details and all the stories, I'd made some stupid mistakes on big giant deer. I'd made my share of mistakes already by 1983. And I had, I had disciplined myself enough, and I knew that this deer was by far the biggest deer I'd ever seen. I knew that I had to basically get mad and, and not let that piece of fur down there dictate to my brain that I couldn't get it done. So I had to slow everything down, and that's what everybody needs to do, even today, right now. It's the same for me. I mean, it's the same for everybody that loves to hunt these big deer like we all do. I mean, when one appears, your heart rate, everything is is accelerated tremendously. And if you don't make yourself slow down, get that pin where it needs to be and hold it, and then get that smooth release, you can't do it. You won't get it done. And it's the hardest thing, you know. I got some really good friends that are that are, that are uh, world class athletes. Some great guys. A lot of people don't realize it, but I love to play golf. I got some great PGA professionals that are buddies of mine, and they've told me that I'm telling you, a big giant whitetail is more stressful in front of you than making a putt for a million. <laughs> And you just got to discipline yourself. And the way back then, I just used to say, you know, I am not going to let that dictate to my brain that I cannot get it done. 
because it'll happen. I mean, you'll get that bow back, and you'll get the pin in the general direction. It's gone. Yeah. You just because it's just everything. Your heart rate, your leg is shaking. You know, it's just. <laughs> but that's why that's why we do it, isn't it? Yes. That's, that's why we do it. And the success, the successful part of it, when we are successful and we do it, is so gratifying because we have to put ourselves in very uncomfortable positions like that to be successful. No different than an athlete. You know, you know, like a Michael Jordan or I, I was watching uh, I was watching Stephen Curry the other night in an interview, and he was saying how he, you know, he wants to put be uncomfortable. He wants to put himself in that situation to knock down that three under all that pressure. Because when he does it, and he doesn't do it all the time, but when he does do it, it's that much sweeter. Yeah, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. So, so of all of your bucks that you've killed, um, whether it be your 200 inchers or any of the other deer that you've killed like this, these big mature deer that have required you to put yourself in these difficult situations and somehow overcome it. Is there any one of those that stands out as the most rewarding, um, or, or memorable for some reason, um, that you could tell us about and why? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's not without a question, without a doubt. It's the one I shot in Ohio, and a lot of people get a little bit puzzled when I tell them that because it's a muzzleloader kill. I was up hunting with Joel Snow in Ohio, and it's 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 a two hundred incher, and but the reason it, it's always going to be be my favorite is because my son Tim was in the tree with me as a cameraman, and we went there and got on the deer on Halloween and on the next day, November the 1st, bow hunting, we got on him. We got him on film. We almost got him. And we stayed two extra days and didn't see him again. But I knew that he would be in that area because it was late October, just before the does had come in heat, and I felt like we were in his home core area. And if he made it through the rut, made it through the season, in the late season, he would be back. And when you buy a, a deer tag in Ohio, it's good for any season, any weapon. So I, him and I formulated this plan that we would come back to Ohio for the muzzleloader season that was between Christmas and New Year. It was a 26th, 7th, 8th, and 9th, I think, or maybe 27, 8, 9, and 30, but it was it was right between. It was a four-day season, and we felt like if we could get back there with a muzzleloader in late season, we'd have a good chance to kill this mega giant. And so we were together during Halloween and the next night, and we didn't get him killed, and it was tremendous. And then we left there, and for the next almost two months, um, well, it would have been almost two months, yeah. It was two months. All We traveled the country. He was filming for me at that time, and we were in other states hunting and, and in Illinois and stuff. 
But we always came back to that Ohio buck, talked about it a lot when we were driving down the road, when we were in the three stand, you know, planning and figuring this out and doing all that. And then we went back, got there on the day before, on the 26th, the day after Christmas. And Joel told me he had a really good spot for me that morning. And I said, no, I'm not hunting in the morning. He said, what do you mean? It's opening day. I said, no, I said, I'm here to try to shoot that big buck for at least the first two days. And I said, I really don't want to go in that spot in the morning because I don't know where he's at. And if he's right there around that thicket that he was coming out of on Halloween, I said, I don't want to bump him in the dark going in because he won't come out of there in the afternoon the way he should. So I'm not hunting the first morning or the second morning. I'll hunt the, the third and the fourth morning even if I hunt somewhere else, but I'm going to give myself at least two opportunities to shoot that deer. And that's what we did. We went in there the first afternoon, got in the same tree that we was in back in October, got up 30 minutes before dark. He pops out right behind the buck that he was with in October. There was another buck there, a big heavy eight pointer. And he comes, he come out in a different place, but he came all the way across into that little clover field where we was at and gave me a 125 yard broadside shot for that muzzleloader and the rest is history. And Tim and I got to share that together that whole time for two months and got to share that killing that deer together and doing the recovery together and everything and Hands down, I don't care what I shoot, unless it's one bigger with him or Terry on either side. <laughs> but that'll always be my favorite because of that. That's awesome. So what do you think was, why, why did that come together? Because that, that's pretty incredible that you saw this buck in October in a certain spot. Two months later, you came back to the exact same place and you killed him that first night. How did you do that? What was the key to that well, all coming together? Well, you know, a lot of luck, of course, but, you know, I know I, I, I was smart enough to realize that that in late October like that, a buck like that, six and a half year old deer like that, is in his home core area. Meaning, you know, these big giant bucks have a home core area and it's relatively small. It's not that big. And I felt like if he disappeared. I, we saw him two days in a row. He disappeared and we stayed two extra days and he disappeared. We didn't see him. So that tells me on about the second or third or the night of the first of November, he found a hot doe because that's when they're just getting ready to come in. And who knows where he's going to be. He could be five miles away, but I knew that if he made it through the rut, made it through the seasons, made it through the shotgun season, which is the Monday after Thanksgiving, in, in Ohio, made it through all that, then we had a good crack at him in late December in the late season because we knew where he lived and where he came out on Halloween evening and the evening and the first of November, he came out of about a 10 or 15 acre thicket that's, that's right up against this big hardwood timber. I mean, a thicket, you know, Rose bush, mulliflower rose, briars, nasty, just you couldn't even get through it. If you had to, you better have Carhartts on if you're going through there. <laughs> and he lived there. 
And I felt like he lived there. And that's why he came out of there just before dark, two evenings in a row at the end of October and the first day of November. And so I felt like if he survived, he would be right back there close in that area in December, in late December, because their number one priority then is food. And, you know, that's just, you know, I mean, it might not have happened that way, but I mean, all the experience and stuff and, and, you know, that's, that's what you do. You formulate a plan and you stick to it and, you know, it doesn't always happen that way, but you got to give yourself that chance. Yeah. And so Tim and I gave us, gave ourselves that chance and drove back you know, six, seven hours, whatever it is up there to Ohio where we was hunting with Joel and, and shot him out of the same tree the first night. It's amazing. All right, before we continue on with Stan, we're going to pause briefly for our weekly whitetail wisdom with whitetail properties. And our producer, Spencer Newharth, will take it from here. This week with whitetail properties, we are joined by Steve Proviance, a land specialist out of northern Oklahoma. And Steve is going to be telling us about what he thinks separates the most successful hunters from everyone else. Well, uh, to start with, you've got to be in an area, um, really a specific area, that even potential to produce the biggest deer. Let's just use that for an example. You know, the guys that are killing the biggest of the big bucks, you know, they're hunting in states that can produce them to begin with and areas of the state that uh, can grow them. Um, there's just so many factors. So I guess really the first one would be just the tract of land or the tracts of land that they had to hunt. Um, secondly, you got to have time. Uh, you got to have, uh, once you get into that area, there's got a big deer and a lot of people can start identifying them now, you know, years ago, you just had to put in the time now with all the technology, trail cameras, et cetera, you can pretty much pinpoint a big buck. And once you find one, you got to have the time to to put into hunting. Um, and that's a lot of things that, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big thing that a guy can't do these days. It seems everybody's busy. So, uh, the more successful hunters are going to have time, um, and energy to put into, to hunt that specific big deer. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Steve currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash proviance. That's P U R V I A. NCE. You you hunt in so many different types of situations now. I mean, from what I understand, you're hunting, you know, all over the country, all sorts of different places across the country. You're hunting all sorts of different types of properties. I mean, it sounds like, you know, sometimes you're hunting with someone like Joel Snow, an outfitter. Sometimes you're hunting, you know, on your own places. Sometimes I understand you've hunted some public. You've hunted in all these different types of situations across all sorts of different circumstances. If you had to kind of drill down what you do to like a few core elements, maybe the three most important elements to how you successfully kill mature deer across all these different situations. What would be those couple, two or three core principles that lead to the success that you keep having? Well, the first thing would be, and, and this is, this is going to sound silly to some people that go, yeah, I've heard that a lot, but it is, it's true. You got to go early and you got to stay late and you get out of it what you're willing to put in it. You're not going to be successful in anything in life. It's no different than hunting big white tails. 
if if you don't give it everything you got, if you don't give it the effort that it deserves, you know, you might kill one once in a while, but not on a consistent basis, not year in, year out. And then the second thing would be know the habits of big mature whitetails, and they're no different here or in Wyoming. They're no different. Once they get to be mature, get the age on them, I mean, they're no different. Their, their, their number one things become survival. They don't like a lot of the other deer. You'll see them in the early season in bachelor groups once in a while, but they don't like being around a lot of deer. They like being off by themselves, you know, for the most part. And probably the third thing is don't shoot anything on the last day that you wouldn't shoot on the first I mean, you know, when you set a goal, stick to it. Because some of the greatest hunts I've ever been on in my life, I never shot nothing. Elaborate on that a bit, uh, because you've got to, you've sat in a tree stand for a long amount of, you know, not only just a long amount in one day, but throughout the entire years. What are some things that you've learned from a mature white-tailed deer that have helped you become the hunter that you are today? Just, you know, the same thing that we've been talking about, really. I mean, he's one thing I'd like to add to it, though, is he's a different animal than the rest of the deer in, in the herd. He is. He's different. Once he gets to be mature, he reacts to situations different. And you, you, so you got to hunt them different. You got to, you got to know, you got to do your homework. You got to know that a big buck, whenever he's traveling through an area, you know, he doesn't travel into the wind. He quarters into the wind. He quarters into it. He's got the wind coming from the side quartering into it. Most of the time, I mean, I've seen big bucks come out with the wind right behind them, but very, very rarely. You know, you got to know those things when he's when he's when he's traveling. He quarters into the wind when you're looking for tree stand locations and knowing what his travel corridors are from the food to the bed or from the bed to the food. Then you got to pick a tree. You got to know that you got to be right on the edge where he's almost going to get you, but he's not going to get you. If you if you know if you know what I mean, I mean you got to put. You know, really the odds are mostly in his favor and you got to think that they're you got to let him think that he's the odds are in his favor when he's coming through there you know just a lot of things like that here's one thing that i would tell people that 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 how i learned a lot of stuff i feel like back in the early days is i um i back a long time ago 70s I, I I started going out after the season was over. Season used to go out the end of December here in Illinois. Now it runs into about the 12th of January. But I would go out, and, and if I was killed out, you could only shoot one buck back in those days. If I was killed out, I'd go out in December. But my point is, I would wait for a fresh snow, a good fresh snowfall. And I would go out to the food source, cut cornfield was corn on the ground where the deer coming to it in late season. And I would pick up, I would pick up a big buck track 
it's easy to tell a big buck track. Some people might tell you that you can't, but I mean, big buck have big, big bucks have big feet. It doesn't take rocket science to figure it out. <laughs> but, but I would pick up a track and I would track those bucks back to the timber when they left the food source and I would take my time and I would watch and I would stop and I would look and I would analyze why he's doing, where he's going, why he's going here versus there, what he's doing and how he's doing it. Because they don't, you know, they don't really have the power of reason. Things are instinctively done by these big deer, but I would figure out why he was doing what he was doing and how he was moving through an area. And then I started realizing where I needed to set up to kill these big deer. And it, and and that holds true, not only where I'm tracking him in the snow, but another timber in another state, they react to the same. It's just like a big, just like a big bass. I mean, a bass fisherman out there, you pull a big giant five, six, seven pounder out from under a certain stump. It won't be long till there'll be another just like him right there. Yeah. You know, and so I, that's how I learned how to pick the right tree. Can, can and the right tree is everything in shooting big giant deer, especially with a bow. It's everything. There's a lot of guys that see big bucks, but seeing big bucks and killing them is a whole different deal. Yeah. Can you elaborate on what makes for the right tree? I mean, first generically, um, but then maybe can you share with us a couple of examples of what some of the, you know, an example right tree might be for different parts of the year even? Because um, I think there's there's so much to talk about in this topic, but we don't always dive deep into it. Um, I'd love to better understand what you mean by that in detail. Well, what I mean is when when a buck's traveling through a piece of woods, I'd say from a bedding area to a food source, you you learn that he travels. He doesn't travel on top of the ridge, and he doesn't travel in the bottom very often. Now, I want to say that once in a great while he'll be on top, or once in a great while he'll be in the bottom, but not very often. And this is a game of percentages. Most of the time, he'll be halfway up or on the side hill. He'll be running the hogbacks. And and you'll learn that if you do what I did. You'll learn that, and then you'll find an area where maybe he's pinched down a little bit, where if he's quartering into the wind, you'll find that tree where you can get in that tree, and even though he's coming quartering into the wind you're off to the side just slightly the the photography of the ground will allow you to do that to where he can't get you he's not going to bust you he's not going to wind you things like that you got to analyze it all you got to analyze the situation and figure it out and figure out you know and it's still not going to work all the time Mm -hmm. but believe me you will it will you'll be more successful if you figure all this stuff out. Yeah. So could you give us an example of maybe what you would consider a great tree stand setup in the early season, a great tree stand setup in the rut and a great setup for the late season? I mean, maybe you've got an example you can look back on that you actually used, or maybe you could just kind of make up an ideal scenario. Well, an early season, an early season, like I hunt in the West or hunt down in Kentucky. Early season is all about the food source, and it's all about hunting in the afternoons. 
Now, I'm not saying you can't shoot a big one early season in the mornings, but you're not going to do it very often. And I don't even hunt mornings hardly ever in the early season. So it's all about the food source, and it's all about scouting, and all about watching the, the bean fields or the alfalfa or whatever your food source is that they're coming out in in September and early October and watching that and watching where they come out and pattern them and then slipping in and putting your tree stand in with the right wind so he comes on out and he doesn't bust you. That, that That's not that difficult with early season. You know, late season is similar to that. And one thing you want to remember in early season and late season, it's all about the food. But one thing that you got to remember is that either late season or early season, afternoons are the best, but you got to let the small bucks and all the does get out past you and get out in the field in the food source and still not win you because he's going to be the last one out or one of the last ones out. And if those other deer get out, and you've got the wind blowing from in the timber out into the food source, and they get out in the food source and get your wind, they're going to get squirrely out there. Sometimes they blow and spook and run off. Sometimes they just get squirrely and get to bouncing around or acting funny. If they're doing that, he ain't coming. He's not coming. So you got to pick the right tree in early season and late season to let all the deer get by you and still not wind you once they get past you. It's not that that's the hard part of of early season and and during the rut my favorite time probably everybody's favorite time to hunt is i look for the perfect trees let me give you a scenario of a creek crossing for instance uh you've got a certain wind you know he's coming quartering into the wind but when he's quartering into the wind he crosses he crosses the creek in this low spot where below this riffle or above, right above on the top side of this riffle. So he will, he will be quartering into the wind, but he will cut that off and give you that opportunity when he crosses that creek to go to the other side. So you set up on that creek crossing. Or same thing, you do the same thing if you've got a little hog back, where he goes through a little hog back. You know what I mean? A little saddle. Mm-hmm. sometimes when he's quartering into the wind, you can get off to the side of that little saddle and he'll change his travel just there for a little short distance to cut through that saddle. You can kill him. You stink like that. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. The, you know, I think a lot of us as deer hunters, we, we begin our process, you know, just figuring out where are the core elements. So you talked about earlier, where do they bed? Where do they feed? You know, where do they travel? And then as we continue to progress, I think we start moving up to the, these types of discussions where we're then talking about, okay, how is the deer going to be traveling between those places with wind in consideration? And then I think that next step is what you just talked about there. It's how do you find the kind of anomalies in his travel where he had, where he's forced into a slightly different thing, which gives you that little tiny edge. And it's, it's really hard, I think, to find that unless you have been out hunting for a long period of time and start knowing how to notice those things. I mean, the, the example you talked about, it sounds perfect. Um, but what a challenge it is to identify that unless you've been able to see deer do these types of things over and over again. And you start to recognize that as almost a pattern. You can say, okay, this is the type of spot. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's it. Or unless you went out in, in December or January on a fresh snow and tracked him. And I track him all the way and see what they do and watch him do those kind of things by his tracks. And I track him all the way until I jump him. I want to know where he's laying, too. Yeah. I want the whole, I want the whole thing. I want all the information. And I'll jump him because when I jump him when season's over, it doesn't make any difference. Right. You know, he'll be back there. He might be a few days before he comes back there, but he'll be back there because you're not going to be back there for eight, nine months. What's the rest of your scouting repertoire look like throughout the rest of the year, the off-season and in-season? It sounds like, I mean, we just talked about a really great idea to use during the winter once you've filled your tag. Um, What else are you doing from a scouting standpoint to put you in a position for success? Well, I'm done now. I'm not. I'm done scouting right now, and I will. And I will be done until at least around the 15th of July. And around the 15th or so of July, then I'll be out in my spots, or I'll have somebody out in the spots that I hunt out of state. Because I don't. I hunt with a couple outfitters, but I don't hunt with many. When I hunt out of state, you know, I usually do my own thing there too. But you know, I'll be done until mid July, and then I'll be watching the bean fields watching the food sources from long range with a spotting scope, looking to see what's there and what's left over and get an idea. And I'll tell you what, even if your season, like in Illinois here, our season doesn't open till October 1st. And once, once you get much past the 15th, 18th of September, those big deer get really, really hard because they rub their velvet off in early September. And once their velvet's been off for a little while, they get away from their buddies. They're not in bachelor groups anymore. And they go off by themselves and you can't find them. I mean, half of these big giant deer here in the Midwest and Illinois live out in standing cornfields in the summertime. But, you know, I'll watch the food source and I'm primarily doing that at that time of year to see what I've got and to see what they turned into from the previous year and to build my confidence. Because if I, if I, for instance, my place over here, uh, West of where we live that Tim and Terry and I are hunting, you know, if I go over there in July and we see two or three big mega bucks coming out every night into a field, it's going to make a difference when I get there in November. Because I'm going to stay early, or I'm going to go early, and I'm going to stay late. It's going to make a difference to me. It's a confidence builder. You know, I know they're there because I just saw them in July and August. I know they're I know they're there somewhere. And so when I do lock in, and in the Midwest, I don't start hunting here until late October. And I'm going to lock in, and it's going it's going to it's going to motivate me. At my age, even. I mean, I don't need a lot of motivation, to be honest with you, because I've never found anything that I like better. Never. But, you know, I mean, I'm going to I'm gonna go, go early and stay late. And, you know, if I've got a couple of deer that I know is something outstanding that, that I want to try to take, that I want to work on, it makes it easier. Yeah. I imagine. So then moving forward after that, you, you've scouted your summer bucks. You're moving now into the season. What's, what's the in-season type of scouting look like, if at all? 
I, I do a little bit, but not a lot. You know, I, I've I've already got my places picked for the most part where I'm going to hunt. I got I got them picked now for where I'm going to hunt here in Illinois this fall. I've already got them picked. So you're I've, doing? I've already been out. You know, I've been out in 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 January, February, March before it started getting green. I've been looking. I've been walking. I mean. I, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't hunt for sheds like I used to. I let Terry and them do that. Terry picked up 50 some this year. Wow. There's a buck he's got both sides of that, that we're going to be hunting this year. That's, um, it's a five by five clean typical. I think he'd be 190 plus this fall. Wow. Yeah. And that's big. That's a big 10 pointer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And and he he's there, you know, and and actually, you know, going forward in the future for all the all the listeners out there, you know, um, I've got I found a spot in early March that is as good as it gets, and I am going to shoot a giant out of it. it it'll be it, hopefully it'll be it'll be him or it'll be another one that that that's in there, but it's a perfect perfect spot it's on the side of a ridge big hardwood ridge it's on the side of it and he's running that ridge he's got a rub line there there's rubs there was rubs in there last fall as big as your leg and you know he's running it with a certain wind and i found a place right there where there's a little saddle that comes off the field way down below the ridge it comes off the field and comes up that ridge and he goes he goes up and he and he drops through that little saddle right there and when he does when the wind's out of the northwest he's quartering into it but when he ha- but, but when he when he goes through that saddle when he cuts off to the side a little bit and goes through that saddle he's vulnerable and I'll kill him right there. So when not going to get me. When do you hunt it, and how do you get in there to hunt it? How will you access that spot, and when will you do that? What conditions? I'll come right up the ridge. I'll come right up the ridge from the field in the bottom, and I'll and I'll park my ranger, my ATV. I'll park it right below it. It's about 150 yards. I'll park it right there. There's a perfect spot for it. It's kind of a little low ditch right there. And I'll pull it right in there, and I'll walk right straight up the ridge. I won't have to walk but 100, 150 yards, and I'll pop in the tree. And this is a rut set, sounds like? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a set for late October and all through the month of November. Yeah. And it's about 150 yards, I'm going to say, below, just down the hill, and, and, and a little bit below a primary food source. And he'll he'll he's cut he's cutting up through there and he's he'll be wind checking that food source. He won't even have to go out in it with a northwest wind to check it. Hmm. So you've got a buck like this, a, a gigantic typical buck, and you just mentioned one example of, of of a great spot you found to set up on on him possibly. What what else mm-hmm. do you do knowing that a giant like that is there? Uh, you mentioned the summer scouting. Um, is there anything else that's going into your strategy this year specifically just for that deer? I've got a couple of spots picked out that is is real uh, real short points. It's crossing the, it's crossing our pasture. 
Um, and what I mean by short points is where the timber line goes along through the pasture and then it sticks way out in the pasture and comes back and it's a little low area that cuts across the pasture. So from one point of the timber to the other point of the timber is, is, is a relatively short distance. It's only about a hundred yards and the rest of it is several hundred yards across and that's where they'll cross. And I got, I got a couple of trees picked out to hunt to hunt with my buck decoy there and if i can catch him on his feet by himself cutting cutting from one spot to another cutting out of one timber to cut across another and i got that buck decoy i'll get him to come into it and i'll kill him tell us about your buck decoy strategy how when are you using that how do you set that up how often do you use that type of thing well i use it Anytime I'm hunting in the Midwest from late October through the month of November and early December, just when I'm hunting the Midwest, I'm using a decoy if I'm sitting in the open during the rut. During that time period, trying to catch those big bucks cruising. I'm using a decoy if I'm sitting on a food source, if I'm sitting on that open pasture or a short, short cut down CRP field. You know, I don't use them when the grass is tall and that stuff. I want them to be able to see it. And that's when I'm using them. And I pick places where the, if I've got my decoy out there in front of me in the open, the wind's blowing from the decoy to me. And I'm sitting right on the edge of the timber. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those things that seems high risk, high reward, but uh, a lot of guys seem to be able to pull it off. Do you find that to be the same case? I mean, is that one of those swing for the fences type moves for you? Well, yeah. I mean, I've spooked deer. I've spooked them with a decoy. And if you're sitting on a food source and it gets late in the day, you know, and there's a lot of does and small bucks come out after they've been out a while staring at that decoy, sometimes they get squirrely, but it doesn't, you know, it, it, there's not enough of a negative there for me not to do it because I've killed so many big mature deer doing that, you know, and I, and the, and the deer that I am targeting is a big mature buck looking for a hot doe cruising during the daytime by himself. And more times than not, when you get that situation, more times than not, he will come to that buck decoy. I don't use a doe decoy, hardly ever, other than I will use it once in a great while if I've had a buck come out and spook on my buck decoy and I'm hunting in the same spot again, I will bring the second decoy and I'll take the antlers and the legs off of it and I'll set it in front of my buck decoy about 15, 20 feet or so like a tending buck, tending the doe. Mm -hmm. You've seen them, yep. doe bedded out in the open field and the buck just standing off to the side. You know, oh, I've done that and I've done that and it's worked before too. Interesting. What, what are you thinking, Dan? <laughs> Well, you know, we always like to share the success, you know, you've been on multiple covers of magazines, you shot multiple bucks, but has there ever been uh, a story or a particular buck that ended up beating you and you, you kind of, uh, held a grudge on that buck or, or use that, that, uh, you know, you being unsuccessful with that particular deer to change how you hunt? No, not really change, but I've had way more of them outsmart me and I not, and I never got, you know, that, 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 than I've gotten because I'm always, I always, 
usually going into every season, I always know where there's a big buck here or there, you know, in places that I hunt. And I, I, I try to hunt them and I lock in on them. But, you know, if something else comes by that's good and solid, I'll go ahead and take them because I'm making TV. But I, I never hold a grudge. I never get mad. I never, you know, I mean, you can't. I mean, you just can't. I mean, it's it's the thrill of doing it. And then when you are successful, which you're not going to be successful on them as much as you're going to be unsuccessful. It just It's just that way. You know, And but never get mad. Just tip your hat. That big boy. Put it on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, you know, that's, that's, you know, a true big buck hunter, you know, is, they love what they do and, and they have a passion for the animal. There is, you know, I mean, a big mature whitetail right here in the Midwest that lives to be eight, nine, ten years old. I mean, you know, he is living in your backyard almost. And it's just, you know, you got to love them. I mean, they are, they, they are a different animal. There's nothing like them. Nothing. They're, they're, they're just so smart and so cunning. Their instincts are so good. And, you know, I mean, when they get to be six or seven, they, they don't even participate that much in the rut. You know, people think you're crazy when they hear somebody like me say that, but they don't. You know, I'm not saying that they don't breed those. They do, but they do it on their own terms. And they don't breed very many of them once they get to be seven or older. They just don't because they can't, you know, they, it, it's, you know, they still participate in it when they can, but it, it's not the number one thing for them anymore. Perpetuating the species is not number one. It's not number one to me. At my age, you know what's number one to me? <laughs> living, living. That's and that's no different with a big giant white tail. Living is more important to them. Survival. That's, that's one of the best moments we've ever had in this podcast. I think right there. That's that's a that's some wisdom right there. <laughs> Amen. Well, I mean, it's true though. When yeah. you stop and think about it, if they're no different than we are. Yeah. I mean, they're just, you know, I mean, it's, it, you know, things evolve, things change, and, and living is more important to them. And besides, that, that, that four-and-a-half or five-and-a-half-year-old will whip their ass. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, it makes it makes perfect sense. You, you have been around, I'm sure, some of the very most experienced and most successful deer hunters in the world. And this is something I often like to ask our guests um, who have kind of experiences like you do um, because of the perspective I think you're able to get from all these different people. Are there any core traits or tactics or anything like that that the very best deer hunters that you know all have? Is there anything that you can put your finger on and say these they all do it or they all have it? Well, the only thing is, the only thing I would say is they all have the passion for big, mature whitetail bucks. They have that passion. They love that animal that they hunt. They love them. They, they can't get enough of it. They have so much respect. And, and that's, that, that's, that, that goes, just goes down the line. I mean, Gene and 
Barry and Dwight and MR and, you know, these guys are all great buddies of mine and people like that, you know, and lots of people that I could mention that, that, that nobody would even recognize, you know, but that they, they, you know, that's, that's it. They just have the passion for hunting the big giant white tail bucks. That's it. They, they just have that passion. They love that animal and they put everything into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whatever. And another thing that you, that you'll notice about people like that is whatever they get out of it is fine with them. Whatever it is, it's fine. It's, it's, a, it's the experience. It's, it's being able to do it and be out there and, and, and just do it. You know, if you don't get him, you don't get him. Mm-hmm. Boy, it's sure nice when you do. <laughs> That's the truth. Is is there anything out there as we as we're talking about all these different things? We've talked about some things kind of high level. We've talked about some things kind of in the weeds. Is there any one thing that if you could talk to the average deer hunter and tell them? focus on this more or change this or really improve in this way. If there's one place that you could like, you know, use a magic wand to help everybody fix this one core thing, what would you want that to be for the average deer hunter out there? Well, for the average deer hunter, the average hunter, but you know, we're talking about deer hunting today. Um, but the one thing is, is, you know, don't get caught. I, I mean, so many people now, think that they need to force their beliefs and their thoughts and the way they do things on everybody else. Just like the deer management, for instance, managing for big bucks on your property, getting upset whenever your neighbor down the road shoots a buck that's three and a half years old that you let go as a year and a half and a two and a half, you know, it's not about that. It's it's about doing what you want to do, and it's about explaining where you're coming from, but it's not about thinking that everybody needs to do what you believe they need to do, and everybody will be better off. I just think that it's I, – I just – that's the number one thing I would like to see people take a step back. And just look at the whole situation say, hey, I am so blessed. I can do what I want to do. I want to try to hunt these big bucks. I want to do the best. But that doesn't mean the guy down the road has to do that. Because if he doesn't do that, he's going to hurt me. And he's going to hurt what I want to do. We live in America. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Is there anything that you do stand that other people, other great deer hunters would think is crazy or would be surprised by? Is there anything that you do that's contrary to the rest of the rest of the big buck hunters out there? Yeah, there is. (laughs) There's one thing I've gotten slack on so many times and you you probably won't believe it when I tell you, but it's, it's trimming shooting lanes. I'm the trimmer. If it's in the way I get it out. And I, I, I've, I've went back and forth with a lot of my good buddies and that are great hunters uh, that tell me I can't do that. Well, 
come on over and take a look on the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, they think that if they cut a branch or cut this or cut that, that the buck is going to, ooh, look, look where Johnny cut that limb. I better back out of here. I don't mean I go in there with a bobcat <laughs> and clean the whole place out, but I, but I trim shooting lanes. And a lot of guys don't. And I'll tell you, one of the best big buck hunters that I know in this North America, period, is Don Kiske. I have as much respect for him as I do for anybody, and he doesn't cut a branch. And him and I went round and around because I've hunted with him and Candy many times. And when they turn me loose and they go in there and find one of my tree stand locations that I've picked, she's trimmed out. <laughs> that drives me crazy. That drives Donnie crazy. <laughs> Is there? But you know what? I mean, it's my way. It's not his way. And believe me, you can't argue with Don Kiske's success. There's nobody out there that kills any bigger ones more often than him. Yeah. So is there anything that you do to compensate for that? I mean, since you've got great big shooting lanes. So do you do you hang your stands higher or are you more careful about being still or anything like that to avoid the negative, the potential negative of having big shooting lanes? Yeah, you got you got to pick a tree that maybe you can you can be more inconspicuous in and sometimes higher is not better. A lot of people a lot of people miss out on that. Sometimes higher is worse. Because if you stand back and you get too high, you're skylighted. It just depends on the situation and, and, the, and the photography of the ground and everything else and your background and stuff like that. Sometimes you're much better off at 15 feet than you are 25. Because at 25, you're, you're out in the open. And at 15, you've got a lot of backdrop and a lot of ground. And, and, and a, you know, it's, it's just a, you just look at the situation. I don't have a set height. People ask me in a lot of my seminars, how high do you like to put your tree stand? Well, I don't have a set height how I put my tree stand. If it's the right tree in the right spot and it's and it will allow me to get up about 20 feet, that's where I like to be. But if it's the right tree in the right spot and I can get 12 feet, that's where I'm going to be. I've got a 207 in here on the wall that you could have jumped up and touched my platform. <laughs> I could have. I could have jumped up and touched it. And believe me, for me to jump up and touch it, it's not very high. <laughs> but it was in a big Osage. It was in a big Osage orange tree, hedge tree. A lot of trunks on it, a lot of limbs, low, a lot of stuff around me. I was well hit. Can you tell us about that hunt? how that all came together too. I, I always find, I, I think maybe it's just me, but I tend to learn more from stories and specific applications. And I'm always interested to hear how something went down and then pick all the different right choices that person made to actually have it all come together. So uh, forgive me for, for keeping on prying into your stories, but I, I, I'm fascinated. Is that one you can tell us? Well, about? yeah, I, I can tell you. Sure. I killed that deer on November the 28th which was right after Thanksgiving, um, just a few days after Thanksgiving. I don't remember exactly what the day was Thanksgiving or what, but I remember that, that the day that I killed him was the 28th of November, and I saw him that morning. And I was about, oh, about 350 yards that morning from where I killed him that afternoon. And I was in an oak tree, and I had a light southwest wind, cold, frosty morning, 
perfect. And I was up, I had an open field behind me and behind me where the open field was to the North, all that from right where it started there, it was a mile before you got to the next timber. So it was wide open and I was in this tree and I was set up where, where, where the, you know, they'd be right in front of me and I was sitting there and I'd been there since before daylight and it was about eight 30 in the morning. I'd been there a while and hadn't seen much. Don't remember a guy, you know, a few, few little does probably or whatever, but I hadn't seen much and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden behind me and to my right, not very far away. I'm just sitting there and, you know, I'm kind of lackadaisical. I'd sat down in the tree. I hadn't seen anything, not a lot of action going. And all of a sudden behind me and to my right, just, you know, and you can tell if it's a doe or a buck blowing, if, you know, I mean, those big mature bucks got a deep, loud snort and he just started blowing, snorting behind me, got my wind, got a little bit of my wind. And I just sat there and I just real slow, turned my head to the right and looked back behind me. And I could see him through the trees about 60 yards away. He was just standing there stomping, blowing every once in a while. He'd gotten a little bit of my wind, not a lot, but a little bit. And he stood there for a little bit and then he turned, he started walking away from me, but, but, but quarter and kind of, quartering down and, and away from me, you know, and when he started walking away from me, I mean, he was a freaking giant, a monster. I could tell, you know, they look so big going away from me, but this was a <laughs> mega deer and he just walked away from me, walked down through this grass, this tall grass, and there was hedge trees mixed in there and stuff. And about every third step, he was just, and he just walked off. Finally, when he got down in there and out of sight, you know, I knew where he was going. He was going to go down and go through this draw, this hedge draw, and then um, go up on top of this, up on top of this ridge, in a in a choked up thicket and bed down. Is what I thought he was probably going to do. And it was late rut. I mean, there was still a little bit going on, but you know, he was just out roaming around looking for a last doe. And so I thought I had a stand down there in that other draw. And I thought as soon as he gets down through that draw and I think he's got enough time where he's out of there, I'm going to get down. I'm going to slip down. I'm going to get out of here. And I'm going to slip right down there in that other tree and I'll surprise him. I'll sit there all day if I need to. Cause he'll come out of there tonight. I figured and that's what I did. I got down, I went over and got in that other tree and I got up in it and I sat down and I sat there for another hour or so. And I realized that I, I had lunch. I brought lunch cause I was going to hunt all day, maybe get down for an hour or two and eat, you know, but get right back in just to break the monotony. Well, I left my lunch in the back of the truck, Oof. you know, and I sat there agonizing on whether to get down or not and go get it. And I got hungry. <laughs> so finally I decided I could get down, leave my bow hanging in the tree, leave everything, get down, slip up through there. It was about an eighth of a mile up to the truck and I, and get that lunch and get right back to the tree as quick as I could and then eat my lunch in the tree. 
And so that's what I did. I got all the way up there and all the way back to that tree. I kept thinking he's going to be standing under it. That's just what happens. This was stupid. Why did you leave it? You know, sometimes you're in a hurry to get out of the truck and get down to stay in the morning. You forget that. Well, I got back down to the tree, never seen him, nothing happened, you know, which I thought might. But I got back up in the tree, sat there and ate my, ate my sandwich. I had two sandwiches stuff, ate and had a, had some pop with me and, and just sat there and seen a doe here and a doe there, you know, set the rest of the day. And about, um, three thirty, four o'clock that afternoon, I had four or five deer right in front of me in the draw milling around browsing it's kind of thick in there but i could see them a couple of small bucks and they were browsing around they were on their feet and i'd already stood up and got my bow because when you get deer around you like that you know deer that you're not going to shoot you need to get on your feet and you need to get your bow in your hand because you never know when all of a sudden you hear something, you look down there, he stands at 20 yards, and then you can't reach over and get your bow because you got all these other deer right around underneath you, and they'll see you moving, and you'll blow it. You know, those are things that you learn by, by being stupid. <laughs> so I was standing there with my bow, and I'm watching these other deer, keeping an eye on them, you know, not moving much, just moving my head. And all of a sudden, right on the left outside edge of the draw, in this hedge draw I was in, I can hear a deer walking, coming up the draw. And I just kind of look down there a little bit to my left, down in front of me. I figure it's one of these deer that's been around me right here, milling around. And I look down and I about died. I mean, here he comes. I mean, a 207. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> he's, he's coming right on the outside edge of the draw in that tall grass. And he walks right up there and stops about 30 yards from me. But I can't shoot him over there because he's outside the draw and there's way too much stuff in the way. And he stops. And he wants to go on up through that saddle, up through that grass, up, up towards where I was that morning. And the reason I know it was the same buck as well as I know my own name, he stood there and stared right up there where I was that morning where he winded me, and he would just stomp his foot. He'd just stomp his right foot every couple, three seconds. He'd just boom, boom, just stomp, and he was just staring up there, staring. He stood there for the longest time doing that, never blew or nothing, just stood there. He didn't like that up there. There was something up there he didn't like. And, he, and I'm standing there, and I'm shaking like a leaf, and then all of a sudden, he just does a complete circle, turns right around, and walks, starts walking right into the draw right in front of me. And he's going to come out in my shooting lane at 20 yards. He's got his head down. He's just walking slow. He don't know I'm in the world. And he's to the south. I mean, I got a southwest wind. All the deer are south of me. I just come to full draw. When he stepped in that shooting lane, I just went, Ick! just stopped him. I smoked him perfect. He ran about. 80 or 100 yards and piled up. He had 21 scoreable points. He was a big 5x5. Five five. He's a big 5x5 five five mainframe with a bunch of stickers and kickers. Gross is 207. Wow. I know it was the same buck I saw that morning. And if I hadn't went down and gotten that tree and decided to stay all day, I wouldn't probably killed him. If I'd have went into that tree at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, I might have bumped some deer or whatever. 
Yeah. It didn't take much. I'm glad I asked you to tell that story too, because not only I mean I think there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from that. You know, number one, what you just said there, you were willing to sit all day. Number two, you had the knowledge to know that when that deer went down in that draw after you watched him from up on the field, you knew he was probably headed into that thicket to bed there. So because of that knowledge you had, probably from previous hunting or scouting, you mm-hmm. knew you knew where to go. You also had the confidence to make that move, which I think is a, another great lesson we can all learn, the fact that you have to sometimes, when the timing's right, you have to be aggressive to get after these big mature bucks. Um, I think the fact that you knew to stand and, ha- and have your, your bow ready when there's other deer around, I think that's a great lesson we can all take from this. Um, and then even back to the very beginning where you talked about the fact that this was that really short tree, right? You, you probably put yourself in a position with good cover, that maybe other hunters wouldn't have wanted to sit there, but you knew that was the right spot to be, and you placed yourself lower than most people would go, but in a place that still. Had good I guarantee cover. you the platform. I guarantee you the platform on that stand was not nine feet. Wow, it was just a little portable tree stand. I popped in. I only had one. I only had one little rapid rail on the tree. I only needed one just to get a, a few feet up, and then I had a couple <laughs> three limbs I could step on to get up in it. Wow. And I had five or six deer around me for an hour or more before that. They didn't get back behind me downwind. They was just right in there messing around, browsing, eating them little leaves that fell off them them uh, hedge trees and stuff, you know. I mean, they were just all around me. They never, not one of them even knew I was in the world. Yeah. It's not always about getting 25 feet. Yeah. I think that's that's just a really great illustration of of all the different little things that you need to do to put a successful hunt together like this um i think that was that was a great example so i'm glad i'm glad thank you for sharing that one stan that one was super helpful dan thanks for having me dan do you have any final question for for stan here just one ultra vague question and that is what is your favorite part about bow hunting whitetails What's your favorite thing? My pepper, the preparation. The preparation building up to the moment. That's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing. It's it's all about the preparation, all about, you know, trying to put the puzzle together and doing it all. And then, of course, the moment of truth is great, but the preparation lasts so much longer. Right. I can relate to that. Amen. And I'm excited because this is the time of year. There's a whole lot of that stuff to do. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, hey, it'll be here before you know it. It's true. It's true. Well, Stan. Yeah, I, I, appreciate, I appreciate you having me on. I really do. Absolutely. It's it's mutual. This is a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of different lessons that we can all take from this. And uh, Stan, if people, if our listeners would like to see some of your hunts on TV in the future, where should they go to see those and when should they be looking for them? They should go to the Sportsman's Channel on Wednesday nights, North American Whitetail. And they should go to the Sportsman's Channels on Tuesday evening and look for Whitetail Explorer. That's my show. And I also host North American Whitetail. But Whitetail Explorer is mine and a couple of buddies. We, we all three are partners in it. And those are the two shows that I'm on now. And you'll see me sprinkled here and there and some other stuff that I do for some friends, but those are the main Wednesday night, North American whitetail Tuesday night, 
Whitetail Explorer. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm sure anyone who has watched your hunts in the past knows uh, it's always a good time following along with Stan on a hunt. So I'd recommend anyone else out there check it out. And Stan, thank you so much, and good luck this coming season. Okay, thanks for having me on, and we'll have to do it again, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thank you much. Sounds great. And that's it, folks. But a couple quick reminders before you hit the stop button on your phone or car. First off, are you following Wired Hunt on social media yet? If not, you really ought to do that. I am constantly posting new articles and podcasts, questions, stories, and photos across all of our social platforms. Um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter are where we're the most active, so be sure to follow along there. You know, Facebook is the best spot to get updates and links to our newest content. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way to share quick feedback with me or to ask quick questions. And Instagram is the best spot to stay up to date on my latest outdoor and hunting adventures as I'm always sharing different photos from all the stuff I'm up to there. So be sure to follow along with Wired to Hunt on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Next, I want to give a big shout out to our partners who have continued to step up to keep the Wired to Hunt podcast on the air. If these companies didn't help us out, there would be no podcast. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And if you found the Wired Hunt podcast valuable, you know, give these companies a quick shout sometime and just let them know that you appreciate their part in making this happen. And finally, thank you all for listening. You know, sponsors or no sponsors, if it wasn't for you, none of this would exist. So Thank you for being hardcore hunters. Thank you for being supporters of Wired to Hunt. Thanks for tuning in today. And until next time, I hope you'll stay Wired to Hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.